You're listening to WRIR LP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio, and this is RVA Report, WRIR's weekly current affairs talk show where community thought and political leaders gather to weigh in on the headlines, their significance, and where they might take us tomorrow. Tax time is still four months away, but with the start of the new year, we all need something to be certain about. So how about death? Yep, pretty certain. And it's healthy, as we take stock for the new year, to also take a moment to ponder our eventual end. So RVA Report presents a new semi-regular segment that's soon to join the pantheon of Richmond Public Media programs. Death Club Radio is an immortal half-hour of radio all about mortality, with our host, the Reverend Elaine Cameron Miles, one of Richmond's first authorities on all things death. Because while dying may well be a certainty, the Reverend Cameron Miles knows better than most that there's little certain about death. It's the one thing we all do, the one thing we all share, but it's also one of the most difficult topics that, frankly, we all prefer not to talk about. That's about to change. Welcome to Death Club Radio, where we talk over, learn about, and consider in ways both deep and silly, the final journey. I am your hostess, Elaine Cameron Miles, and I'm mighty glad to be standing six feet over this week. If you are new to the show, I am a death professional, and luckily for me, not the creepiest person you'll ever meet. So I feel like it's better to hear death stuff from me than from the kids on the playground or, God forbid, someone at work. Here at Death Club Radio, our goal is sharing information, hopefully a laugh or two, and hearing from a wide variety of fascinating and brilliant characters who work with death and dying, or are just my Facebook friends. Welcome this week to Logan, who's keeping me company in the studio. Logan, can you say hi? How's everybody doing? I'm glad you could be here today. Logan is a longtime friend of mine, and he is also going to bring his expertise in political science. He's graduating with a degree in poli-sci from Virginia Commonwealth University this week. Congratulations, Logan. Glad to be here. This week on Death Club Radio, in the How We Die segment, we will be sharing some behind-the-scenes funereal tidbits answering some great listener questions in the Ask Death Club room, and as always, share our weekly Something Weird. So thanks for tuning in. Let's kick things off with Obituary Roundup. Obituary Roundup is where we look at famous or well-written or otherwise intriguing obituaries that have come to my attention. This is what I call Died Around the World. This week, our focus comes from the Chicago Sun-Times. Bernard Slaughter Sr. gets our headline this week because of my weakness for funeral directors. Mr. Slaughter made his career as a funeral director in Chicago and was intimately involved in two very famous funerals in his career, both having more than 10,000 attendees. I perform funerals frequently, and they can be a full day's work with only a few attendees. So I cannot begin to imagine 10,000 mourning people, media, onlookers, and potential troublemakers like you, Logan. (laughs) Who can imagine that? 
Mr. Slaughter's most famous funeral was for Sam Cooke. Logan, do you even know who Sam Cooke is? I have no idea. <laughs> That's the right answer. Sam Cooke was a legendary R&B singer out of Chicago whose hits included You Send Me, Twist in the Night Away, and Chain Gang. He was shot and killed in 1964 on December 11th at the Hacienda Motel in Los Angeles, California. Bernard Slaughter was in charge of the post-embalming makeup for Mr. Sam Cooke. This is an area of expertise few know or understand, but it is part chemistry, artistry, and also requires a good understanding of human nature in grief. We'll have more on that later in the show. Logan, do you think you'll be able to possibly wait that long? The anticipation is killing me. I, uh, <laughs> no I pun so. intended. Yeah, yeah. So after Bernard Slaughter had his own funeral home, he also directed the services for Ben Wilson. People in uh, middle America who lived there in the 80s will remember that Ben Wilson was the number one high school basketball player in the country before he was murdered in the street in 1984. An estimated 10,000 people showed up to bid farewell to him because he had seemed to have a dream career ahead of him and instead, as the Chicago Times put it, became a near-mythical symbol of unrealized potential and shattered dreams. So Mr. Slaughter showed that through his detail work, he was able to handle extreme cases in funerals, but also the more common, the grandmother, the neighbor, the business person, the friend. His profession requires business savvy and artistic flair and deep compassion. Mr. Slaughter, at 87 years old, was also a baritone singer who enjoyed gospel music. Rest in peace, sir, and thank you for your selfless service to the good people of Chicago. In other death news, of course, unless you've been living under a rock or composing a symphony in your bomb shelter, you know that Nelson Mandela died. How many hours of Nelson Mandela broadcast do you think there have been, Logan? Oof. I, honestly, it's, it's been huge. Um, I think, sadly, in America, it's been a little undermined by uh, the recent passing of Paul Walker also. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, it was enough days after that that people had moved on somewhat, and uh, it's been huge, um, yeah. I would say. Yeah. I mean, with the funerals and with the the different church services and tributes and the talking heads, um, plus the fact, you know, Man- Mandela's age meant that he had that crisis earlier this summer, and we we knew that it was coming. And so I think people have had some time to really prepare their talking head response to his life and death. Yes waiting for this. Right, just to talk about it. Well, I think there's been an interesting twist with uh, Mandela's death, and that's um, in addition to the usual obits and the newscasts, the services and the talking head tributes, we also have social media, which I don't think we've had with such a huge historical figure, certainly not from that era before. Um, And I think that makes a lot of us amateur eulogists um, what have you thought about the social media aspect of Mandela's death coverage? I think it's great that um, a great man and, you know, to borrow from Obama, the last great liberator. I don't know if I would quite coin him as that. But um, I think it's great that people have had an opportunity. Um, the common man, so to speak, has had an opportunity to, to have their voice heard um, compared to traditional obituaries where the writer gets to say their piece and gets to get 
you know, semi-famous off of it and the rest of us are left, you know, to keep it between us and our friends. Whereas now with social media, you can get out there and say whatever you want to say and pay your respects. I can't speak for the man, but if I had lived my life for a movement, I would much rather the spotlight of my passing be put onto my movement than me myself. He doesn't seem like a person, you know, that would want to be at the center stage. Right. I believe that if he was, a, you know, it's impossible, but if there was a dichotomy and he could be alive and die... I'm pretty sure at his own funeral, he'd be saying, I want to look at what I've done and where we've come instead of Mm -hmm. myself. Well, I have to affirm you on that and also uh, come out of the eulogist closet. I did write a piece on Mandela for a German publisher this summer uh, when he became ill. And um, one of the things I discovered in doing the research on him is exactly what you're saying, that he um, was not interested in uh, biographies. If you look at his so-called autobiography, it's all about uh, quotes of the struggle, you know, the decades and decades long struggle with apartheid and oppression in South Africa. Uh, and also, he was very, in- he often talked about how his life was a flawed life, you know, that he was a man who had lots of flaws, these so-called scandals about him uh, involving his marriages or his beliefs on whether armed resistance was a positive or a negative thing. Um, He said that those were part of his personality and shouldn't be brought up in the breadth of the huge struggle that he was part of. And And I agree with you. You know, I think in America particularly, we love to we love to get wrapped up in the celebrity. I mean, really, would anyone know who Paul Walker, who's a, a movie star, you know, who he was if it weren't for that visual imagery? And we're very visual as Americans. And I think Nelson Mandela, much of what we've seen in social media, particularly in Facebook, has been about the visual of the man um, and not the struggle of his people. Do you think that's an accurate I think it's very accurate. Um, again, it just – people – like you said, people get caught up in the celebrity and you know, the name Nelson Mandela is a household name, especially after he's died. And you have two individuals. Like you said, Paul Walker was no different than any of us, but he was a famous movie star. And honestly, if you compare the two and the recognition they've gotten in the past weeks, whereas one man's career was made off of a fantasy and one man's was a reality. Yeah. One was a struggle and one was a luxury. And it just goes back to everything else that Americans stand for, that we go with the one that's materialistic. It's like, who would the common American rather be? Would you rather be Nelson Mandela and suffer in a jail cell for a movement you believe in? Or would you rather be a movie star? And I think that the social media has just proved that hands down and that we've gotten far away from what actually matters. And to me, an obituary and, you know, parting words don't really mean anything if they're hollow words. And, you know, just saying, you know, I I, I hope his soul rests in peace. I don't think he'd want that. I, I think, again, much more he would say, continue my movement, right. learn from my work, learn what I've done. Where is oppression left in the world and what can we do about it? Exactly. Yeah, I agree. Well, I want to wrap up our obituary roundup. Thank you so much for your uh, responses there, Logan. I appreciate that. Um, I'd also like to bring it back to death and dying about age. Nelson Mandela being a nonagenarian, Paul Walker being uh, only 40, I believe, at the time of his death. You know, I think that um, sometimes when we look at people who've died, we think about them at the age at which they died, which is appropriate with Paul Walker being young and at the height of his career. 
But Mandela has had decades of life. And I find that when I'm doing obituaries or eulogies, I find that it's very important to me to give representations from the many decades of a person's life, you know, to not just hold up the years in Mandela's case where he was, uh, was president of South Africa, um, but to also talk about, you know, where he was before and after that um, as he became both the father and then the grandfather of a nation, you know. Anyway, with that in mind, I invite all of you at, who are listening to think about that uh, in the death of not just Mandela, but people in your life. And are we oversimplifying? Once someone is gone, do we oversimplify who they are and what they stood for? And now we'll move from our obituary roundup to the section I call How We Die. In How We Die, I talk about a variety of things, including disease, violence, accident, giving research news, uh, also things about philanthropy. But today, in the spirit of Mr. Slaughter, Chicago's recently deceased funeral director, I'm going to talk about makeup history. Logan, I know this is why you showed up. You, oh, definitely. <laughs> you wanted to hear about some, <laughs> some makeup and death. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that Mr. Slaughter had done the makeup for Sam Cooke after he died. This is very significant because Sam Cooke, um, to put a very fine clinical term on it, was an uber hunk. The dude was gorgeous, and uh, he was incredibly talented, and he was, he was a heartthrob and murdered. And so there were issues that Chicago wanted to see their beautiful man. And that's very tricky to do. It's a, it's a tricky job to do. And I've uh, studied this some because viewing of the dead body has had all kinds of customs and strangeness throughout human history. And I think, personally, that that uh, depends on a culture's beliefs of good and evil, death and the afterlife, the dangers and risks of the body itself. But if we want to talk about America today, there's also our whole idea that Logan has touched on earlier about body image and, and the celebrity image. So when we think about pop culture in America, you know, and the dead body, we've got um, vampires coming out of coffins, right? Um, that whole interest in ancient Egypt and mummies. Uh, when I was coming up, Michael Jackson's thriller was the end-all uh, statement on what uh, those who had died look like. And now we, of course, are all preparing for the zombie apocalypse. I'm feeling, I'm feeling well prepared for that. I don't know about you, but oh, Plan A through Z, you already know, darling. <laughs> so, you know, th- this issue of makeup. I think really talks about uh, our culture. And Logan, you talked about uh, our culture of celebrity and image. But I want to talk a little bit about the dying process, which isn't something that everyone normally gets to hear around the dinner table. But um, when when our bodies are dying, and when our bodies, like Mandela's, was dying of natural causes, a lot of things happen. The human body, it's like... Uh, a machine that systems start firing off in odd directions. So there can be fluid retention, there can be dehydration, there can be cell breakdown. Our oxygenation is messed up because we're not breathing right. And then death itself does things to the skin and the complexion that 
aren't really the friendliest of processes, I think. And I would say, really, I have seen in my work rainbow colors. You know, we, we like to say our complexions are all from the rainbow, but usually we don't mention orange, green, uh, blue, and black. And I'm not talking about a black that describes tan to coffee. I'm talking midnight black. And these things can be caused by all kinds of things. And the idea of makeup and embalming is to reverse time and to give us an image of the person who has died that is supposed to be some kind of balm or comfort. Logan, I know you've been to plenty of funerals. Have you ever thought about the concept of makeup and a dead body? I really haven't, to be honest. Um, Everyone's been to at least one funerals or like weddings, whether you wanted to or not. You've either been dragged to one or you went voluntarily out of respect. The only close person I ever lost was my grandfather, and that Mm -hmm. was the first time that this process was brought to my attention, even the funerals I'd been to before. Fortunately, one had to be a closed casket, so there's not too much process in that. Um, But I noticed, you know, he he looked good. He looked better in death, honestly, than he did life his last couple Mm -hmm. years. Um, But I think all this in this idea comes from basically we just have such an obsession with legacy and this after-death image, and it's just something we can't let go even in death. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, even though people are dead, they still want to look good. So it hasn't been a process that I've thought a lot about, but I think it's very comparable to how people want to go out with some type of legacy. They want to go out looking good. So that's why why we spend so much money on caskets and suits on, you know, dead bodies um, in this process. It's kind of like one last thing to do for them. Well, would you like to hear about it? Would you like to hear how that... Please enlighten me. (laughs) Yeah, I thought you might. I could just tell. Oh, I love to know everything. So one thing that's done is um, first uh, the funeral director... uh, Cleans the body, of course, and whether uh, male or female, child or elderly, uh, the face is shaved. Um, we all have some peach fuzz that we don't necessarily know about, and anyone, you know, most of us don't know the time of our death, and so usually haven't plucked or taken care of things as maybe we'd want to. And of course, because we're using makeup, that makes the hair stand out. So, Cleaned and shaved, and uh, then there are some embalming techniques and uh, funereal techniques done with the eyes and the jaw, which I will talk about in a different episode. But then we get down to the makeup, and it seems to me in gender that the makeup has two different jobs, and see if this fits with your experience. With men, the idea is for it to be invisible, for your grandfather to look his best. You think that's accurate? I believe so. I mean, you you know, as a man, you don't want to go out with makeup on your face, so to speak. So I think, you know, concealing it for the male is a lot more important than the female. Right. Yeah. And for women, to me, um, you know, this one's a little hard for me. Those of you who can't see me, I don't wear makeup. So I don't quite uh, understand what makeup is trying to do in life. Um, if I'm wearing makeup, it's because I'm going to be in lights that day, you know, be in front of hundreds of people. But otherwise, I don't wear it. And so I'm not quite sure about what's going on with women and makeup at at death. Um, But I talked to um, a certified nursing assistant today named Alice, a wonderful gal. And she's agreed to be on the show at some point. And I said, Alice, what do you think is going on with, with makeup? And she said she likened it to what she does in her work. Every day she works in hospice and she is caring for people that they may have comfort, physical comfort, and dignity 
in their dying days. And she says she'll get someone who comes in, a man who's got uh, a scraggly beard, his hair's a little too long, his fingernails are too long. But before she cleans him up, if he is not able to speak for himself, she'll talk to the family to find out what's going on. You know, um, is, is this his look or is this the illness? And she says something that I think is a great quote for, for understanding makeup at, uh, after life is over, and that is that it maintains your identity, that um, the idea is that you have a look and that the makeup is able to maintain your identity. I know a funeral director who called me up one time. This was over a decade ago, and he, very humble guy, but his specialty was reconstruction and uh, makeup. And he said, Chaplain, I want you to come over and see my work. <laughs> Only I get calls like this, you know. And, um, <laughs> so I go to the funeral home, and uh, the deceased is a grandmother, and she's laid out and beautiful casket, lovely room, lovely flowers. I walk over to the casket, and I look in, and uh, she's got good hair. She's wearing nice clothes, got a good even skin tone. But on her forehead are two eyebrows that have been drawn up like peaks headed toward her hairline. (laughs) (laughs) On her cheeks are these circles of rouge that look like a four-year-old had put them on. On her eyes, turquoise eyeshadow and hot red lips. And for just a moment, I thought my dear friend, the funeral director, had uh, taken up an interest in crack cocaine, maybe. I, I didn't know what to think. And then I looked up from the casket to the, the family portrait, the family's favorite portrait of her. And guess what it looked like? Exactly that. Exactly that. <laughs> I mean, she looked like she was sleeping. Mm. And so I called him up, and we basically had a discussion about maintaining someone's identity. For that family to clean her up, to give her tasteful makeup, would have been offensive. Instead, he maintained her identity and recognized who she was. So something to think about as you are planning your the days after your final days. What kind of makeup would you want and who's going to be working on it? Now we've come to Ask Death Club. This is our segment where we talk about ethics and etiquette and just plain dealing with the gross. So when I was doing the research on makeup, um, I received, I, I looked, and the number one Google thing for uh, makeup and funerals is what kind of makeup should I wear to the funeral? Once again, proving your point, Logan, Americans are extremely unfocused about what's important. Very much so. (laughs) But I'm going to answer the question anyway. Um, I'm assuming this is a question from women. So uh, I would say because of the hugs that you get when you're um, seeing people you haven't seen in years, I recommend that you reduce the face powder, the lipstick, and the blush because everybody's wearing those suits and dresses that they only wear at funerals and don't want to stain them. If you're emotionally attached to the person, I recommend you skip the eyeliner and only mascara the upper lashes. I'm telling you, you can't find this stuff in Cosmo. Death Club Radio, it's the only place you're going to get this makeup advice. Um, Also, I uh, say that go more like the male corpse. Go more with natural tones in your makeup. 
you don't want to look like you're not wearing any makeup. It's a little gauche to come with your club makeup on and uh, to the funeral. So I recommend that. But more important than all of the makeup, men and women limit the perfume and cologne. We have, can you, can you remember, Logan, a smell from childhood like baking cookies or, or dirt? I mean, I really think about dirt when uh, I think about childhood. Um, childhood, oof. I think outside because yeah. I just was always outside. I mean, right. outside doesn't have one particular smell. But, exactly. Uh, yeah. Now, when you think funeral, do you think like me, carnations? I mean, that's that's the smell I think of when I think funeral. I think of death, and I think very stale smells, very right. uh, yeah. unappealing. Now, imagine you go to a, a very uh, significant funeral in your life, and someone is sitting near you with a particularly heavy dose of cologne or perfume on. What people don't realize is everyone around them, when they remember that funeral, they're going to remember that scent. And do you really want to be wearing O? Oh, to Uncle Leroy's funeral. I mean, most of us are miserable enough <laughs> without you putting us through something like that. And exactly. d- don't they say that smell is the most uh, strong right. sense tied to memory? It sure is. Yeah, so sure when is. you remember uh, your grandpa's funeral, instead of remembering your grandfather's life, you're going to be re- remembering the lady in the road behind you that smelled like J.C. Penney's. You do not want it. You do not want it. No, don't put anybody through that. All Please. Right. Well, thank you. That wraps up our Ask Death Club. And uh, to close tonight, we've got... Um, our daily something weird. So, Logan, don't disappoint me here. Have you ever seen the tomb of linen? You know, I actually haven't. All right. That's what I was hoping. Well, I brought some pictures for you today. Um, for those of you who don't realize this, Vladimir Lenin has been on display since his death in 1924. I'm going to do a show where I talk more about um, Lenin's tomb because I think it's a fascinating thing for Death Club Radio. Um, but, you know, Logan, we need to think about this too. This is in January. This is coming up. What are we going to do to celebrate Lenin's death anniversary? I think we should have a communist party. <laughs> right. Sounds good. You bring the borscht. I'll bring the vodka. Um, Sounds great. And uh, we'll have our sound guy, Jack, here. He can bring the ideology. Well, is that all right with you, Jack? Sure. All I'm right. Thank you. All right, Logan, I'm passing. Ladies and gentlemen at home, I'm passing, Logan, the pictures of Lennon's tomb. We're bringing this up in the Daily Something Weird because last year... Um, Lennon's tomb was closed. Believe it or not, Lennon's corpse was holding up better than the building. The building started to have some structural problems and needed repair, and so they closed it down, and it was just reopened this summer. So what do you see in there, Logan? Welcome to Lennon's tomb. Well, it looks like the communists outsurvived communism, uh, <laughs> first of all. Second of all, yeah. There's it, a legacy. It, yeah, it definitely belongs in the weird section. Um <laughs> I don't know. This looks like something out of Ripley's, you know, <laughs> not, not to insult a great leader, um, yeah. whether you agree, agree with his ideology. Um, I don't know. <laughs> it's very strange. It's almost like a, a human aquarium. Yeah, that's a great, a great. Uh, and it looks like there's steps on top, yet you couldn't reach them to walk on them. Right. But it'd be disrespectful to walk on top of a dead body anyway. Yeah. Well, um, for those of you who have, who have not seen Lennon's tomb, I invite you to Look it up on the internet or make a little trip over to Russia and check it out. We're going to be talking on the next 
Death Club Radio about the tomb itself and and this whole idea. But um, d- isn't his makeup fantastic? I you couldn't tell the guy's dead. It looks <laughs> it looks like he's just taking a hell of a nap. <laughs> Ninety years is one heck of a nap. Thank you, Logan, for uh, giving me my feedback for my daily something weird today. I hope this episode of Death Club Radio has been enlightening. Logan, thank you so much for coming and helping me out. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And uh, thank you to Jack for his help with sound. We really appreciate it. So until we meet again, please uh, stay alert and stay alive. And we look forward to meeting you again on Death Club Radio. Bye, y'all. Nothing unites Americans like tragedy, and on April 15th of last year, tragedy struck. Tamerlane and Sokar Asarnev, disaffected immigrant brothers sympathetic to the cause of Islamist rebels in the Russian breakaway state of Chechnya, set off two bombs in crowds gathered near the finish line of the Boston Marathon. Hundreds were injured, three died. In the days that followed, dozens more were injured, and two more, including Tamerlane, also died. It was an emotional end to an emotional event but it was far from over. With the death of Tamerlane and the visceral anger of most Americans, the biggest question remained how to handle the burial of somebody who'd so ruthlessly maimed and killed innocent people. Many advocated dumping the body at sea, as had been done with al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden. Others suggested even less charitable methods of disposing of his body. As America debated, and as the American Islamic community once again weathered the scrutiny of fellow citizens, one courageous Richmond woman decided to act. Moved by her firm conviction that a society is judged by its ability to show compassion, Martha Mullen made private arrangements to bury Tamerlane at her own expense in a plot in a Muslim cemetery in Doswell. When the world discovered her act of kindness, reactions were mixed, and not necessarily kind. Shortly after, Mullen appeared on WRIR to talk about the controversy and her brave act of kindness at a time when few of her fellow Americans felt disposed towards kindness. In spite of the seeming simplicity and unavoidability of the act, death and dying is never easy. It's painful for survivors, and in cases where death takes the form of tragedy or trauma, it can draw out an amazing array of emotions. Some of those emotions are easy enough to understand. Others are far more complex. Martha Mullen, champion arm wrestler and licensed counselor in private practice, is with me today, uh, and also the Reverend Elaine Cameron Miles, a Unitarian minister who specializes in death, dying, and bereavement. Miles may be familiar to some of you as the officiant at the funeral services for the Harvey family. Uh, Ricky Gray, one of their killers, sought this past week to avoid his death sentence, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. But first, Martha uh, made headlines last Friday when it was announced that she personally paid for Tamerlan Tsarnaev, the older brother of the duo who carried out the Boston bombings last month, uh, to be buried here in Caroline County. But afterwards, Tsarnaev's body was in limbo for weeks after the bombing because of public outrage over plans to provide burial near his adopted home and the site of his crime, Boston. 
Um, Martha, thank you for being with me. Sure. And Elaine, thanks for being here as well. Sure. All right. So I guess let's start with Martha. Martha, you've been as much a subject of this range of human emotion displayed about this tragedy as any of the victims, or for that matter, the bombers. Um, how's that been for you, I guess, being in the middle of that? Actually, I, I, I did offer to um, put forward a sum of money um, to kind of encourage other people from an interfaith perspective perhaps to donate, people or organizations. And actually the, um, the cemetery where he is buried, the people who administrate that uh, elected to offer the, the plot free of charge uh, to the family. And they have resources to do that. And I could, so then I contributed to um, replenishing the resources. But um, I think it was, uh, in my mind, very um, generous of, of them to offer the, the burial side to the family, to the uncle, who I think got saddled with this and, and of course, stepped up to the plate, which, which is, um, you know, commendable. Well, yeah. and that's a very interesting distinction. So yeah. what you really did was you, you sort of paid it forward in a way. Pr- pretty pretty much, yeah. Um, I, I paid it forward after the fact, actually, because <laughs> they, w- when they responded to my email, um, they and actually, interestingly enough, I you know Tuesday morning a week ago, um, I think it was the um, the the seventh. Uh, I st- I just emailed a bunch of different faith organizations, and even my own pastor thought it was spam and almost deleted it. So you know, I I, I think it's interesting that you know the people who did respond. Um, I'm sure other people probably would have responded, but they just probably saw the tag, um, which I didn't think. I put, you know, burying Tamerlan Sarnayev. And so um, the Islamic Funeral Services of Virginia responded, and they said, well, you know. How many responses did you get, and how many did you send? The email went to, um, I'm a member of the Jewish Community Center, so I sent an email out to the, I wasn't sure who I should email, so I just sent it to the CEO, and I I sent it to the Hindu um, uh, temple uh, there's a website, um, I think they're on Springfield, and I um, sent it to my pastors, and then I sent it to the Islamic Federation of Greater Rich- Richmond, and then they forwarded it to the Islamic uh, Funeral Services of Virginia, and they're the ones ultimately who responded, and they offered the, the plot. Um, and then after that, then it was between the funeral home director up there, Peter Stephan and the um, Islamic Funeral Services of Virginia, and then the uncle of Tamerlan Sarnayev. Something got through to you. I don't know if it was through that article, but... I just kind of had this... Well, well there's a there's a, a favorite quote that I have from Gandhi. It says, whatever you do may seem insignificant, but it's most important that you do it. And then I was thinking, you know, Jesus says, love our enemies, and I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm a United Methodist, and... and um, uh, and I was also kind of just really, I guess, irritated with my fellow countrymen. This is more than just a the burial of a violent person um, creating this, this flap. And the only difference that I could see, and I'm certainly willing to be wrong, but the only difference that I could see was the fact that he was Muslim. And... And now, I, how, did, how did you get to that? Because, again, you were talking a little bit about that before the mm-hmm. broadcast, and, mm-hmm. and you had a process that, that you arrived at that through that I was it, – it, it's not just as simple as that, in other words, the way that you described it earlier when you were talking with Elaine. Well, it, I mean, Elaine, I, I, you know, I think that when we were talking, we were trying to 
differentiate, um, you know, what exactly is the difference here? And I think part of it was that no one was willing to claim the body at first. Right. Normally we have a family who is stepping up in some way and then privately and discreetly taking care of the burial mm -hmm. or cremation concerns. Mm -hmm. um, and we have multiple examples of that. Then um, we have examples of uh, famous criminals who were uh, cremated, but that wasn't an option here. Right. Um, and, you know, we can also talk about um, America. And, and it was not an option because of his religion. Not an option because of his religion and also because, um, you know, the Geneva Conventions talk about burial that is respectful of the person's religion. And, um, and so that's, you know, what we're trying to do. And cremation is is generally not done in Islam. Um, so, but, um, you know, what Martha and I were talking about is that um, I see it as kind of a trifecta of strikes against him, which um, one, it was a terrorist act. Mm -hmm. um, two, it was very recent. Mm -hmm. And uh, so dealing with the issue of a body the family isn't claiming um, on a recent event is, we don't have a lot of precedent for that. And then the fact that he is Muslim um, and the burial requirements and that cremation is not an option is, is all part of, part of that problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's problematic to begin with, with respect to finding a place to inter him. And I understand that they, they had lots of uh, different options and offers, uh, you know, well over 100, 150. Um, but uh, the, the the localities uh, and the or the this the funeral officials or the cemetery administrators uh, from wherever those places were were like no nah, no we don't we don't want to take this on, so there was kind of a reluctance to to engage, even take the body to even take the body, and then uh, I think it seemed to me there was there was some xenophobia going on and some some discrimination because he was Muslim and I, I I'm a very big believer in interfaith issues and um, the fact that every religion has a right to peacefully coexist uh, with every other religion and there are many things we can learn from many different religious traditions and and I uh, I just f I feel I guess in this country ever since 9-11 that the, the the Muslim the Islamic community has been considerably vilified um, to a greater or lesser degree, depending on, um, w well, I just give you an example. I mean, I, they asked me to be the spokesperson because they were f concerned about backlash, and we prepared a press release because they were concerned about backlash, and then there was a considerable amount of backlash. So on that, the that, in fact, that was one of the the immediate criticisms of you in the mm -hmm. wake of this was, uh, well, she put out a press release, mm -hmm. but that was something you were asked to do. I was asked um, to do that. I, the, the people at the Islamic uh, Funeral Services of Virginia said, well, look, we think we need to draft a press release so that we can explain why we did this and what our concerns were. And it was, it was very simple. Um, and they asked me if, if, uh, if, it, if I would be willing to, to release that and be the spokesperson for them, because they were concerned about, about backlash. I mean, and these are people who have been in this country for years who are professionals. Um, I'm, and I, again, I'm not, I agreed not to identify any of them. Um, uh, but, um, y you know, they were very concerned, um, and, 
you know, right, rightfully so. Um, uh, so I, I think the fact, and, and I have since heard that from some of some of them have told me that some of their friends have said, you know, we're really glad that 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 uh, she took this on. We were we were, were we were concerned, but she stood up for us. You know, she stood up for the Muslim community. Now, what I, I find interesting between the two of you is both of you have uh, dealt with. Uh, you, you said you had worked with hospice. Mm-hmm. Um, no, she had worked with hospice, and okay. I've, I've worked with people who have grieving, grief and loss, and, as and a, dying issues. Sure, of course, as in a your profession. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess so. You, you you both have sort of this commonality, this this sympathy, this empathy for for regardless of who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody dies and it's it's yeah. a it's a crossing over it's a process I and guess. and grief is a very unique experience um depending on uh people's culture the circumstances of the death exactly. um what people are prepared for um and so what concerned me uh, immediately when the news broke that it was an issue about where the body would be buried, is that that brings up things for all kinds of people who have no ties to Boston whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Um, The issues of um, burial and final resting place uh, can be very troubling Mm -hmm. for for grieving people. Um, And to me, uh, it just, I certainly agreed with the police chief of Worcester that we are not barbarians. Mm -hmm. We bury our dead. and so that needs needs to happen. I think the reason, um, and what hasn't been stated, I know enough cemetery owners and funeral directors to know that they put out a lot of pro bono stuff, and they don't talk about it. They're very quiet about it when it's uh, a child or, you know, an elderly person who lived a long life. Um, but it also has to be done for people who um, are accused of crimes mm-hmm. and. Um, it's, they don't talk about that part of what they do. And so money was, was part of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that I didn't hear that brought up as much um, about that side of cemetery life and, and funeral director life. Um, but I'm not at all surprised that the funeral director was one of the most uh, compassionate figures in this narrative Very much so, yeah. because of um, what they see every day and what what they have to do every day. Um, it's certainly a, a very American job. Mm-hmm. You do it for everyone equally, um, giving everyone the best treatment you can. That's very true. He was one of the first people who dealt with uh, the, you know, AIDS victims who had died, and he and he took Peter Stephan. I, I remember reading that. Yeah, yeah that so he was he was very compassionate. Yeah. And again, this is another group that uh, and now. Clearly, these are victims. We mm-hmm. understand that now. Sure, um, but at the time, but at the time, you know, people were thirty years this ago. Vilification yeah. of, mm-hmm. of those people who right. clearly did something. Um, was the, there was like the, a, a blaming and, and a kind of a well, they deserve that, and and there was that same sort of thing with, you know, the, the, it was a there was a vindictiveness and a, a vitriol about you know some of the things on the web. You know, he should be fed to the worms. He should be, you know, th- those kinds of things. And I, and I guess that's the, that that's a that's a concerning thing for me because, um, there was a article I I can't remember um, who wrote it, but he he was saying you know one of the part of the responsibilities of living in a civilized society is that we 
we uh, we extend the right of uh, burial to everyone. You know, that's what we do. We don't put heads on pikes outside of cities. We that we've gotten past that in the, in our history, <laughs> and uh, so you know that's um, I think it's just telling that this uh, touched a huge nerve in people. Now, Elaine, you um, did a little bit of research before mm -hmm. coming here, of course, and and. Uh, yourself you've uh, officiated for the victims of somebody who in the future may be um, somebody we don't really want to have buried next door um, and and of course I guess leading out of all of this we've mm -hmm. seen quite a bit in the news about some of these uh, um, Jeffrey Dahmer etc and where they're buried and but they're really in in I guess the history of people that we don't want to bury there has been uh, uh, I don't know, a, a tradition of compassion, it seems like. Right. Um, you know, there. Uh, when you look at um, a transition uh, out of, let's start with the Hebrew scriptures, you know, uh, the first thing I thought when I saw that uh, they were having trouble finding a place to bury him was, we don't treat people like Jezebel. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jezebel... Um, her story comes up in uh, First and Second Kings in the Hebrew Scriptures, and uh, it's a story of a mixed marriage, a mixed cultural marriage of royalty. And she came from a culture who worshipped Baal, and her husband Ahab, who was uh, a king of Israel, um, he of course came from a culture that worshipped Yahweh and because of her behavior about her religion she was thrown from a window um, defenestrated and and dogs um, chewed her up and scattered her about which was a punishment that the prophet Elijah had um, foreseen as the worst possible thing so that the people um, who loved her could not go anywhere to say goodbye to her mm -hmm. and um, I know that some of the, the the residents in the area of the cemetery who actually had no idea the cemetery was there until recent events. Um, it's on private property. And I know of other places, other cemeteries in Richmond, who do Muslim um, burials as as part of um, a part of what they do, mm -hmm. um, and they're concerned about who would come to the graveside. Um, so we look look at these things, but I think the most connected one. When I went back through history and looked at um, serial killers and uh, terrorists and, um, you know, assassins, um, I think that the 9-11 terrorists are probably um, the, the saddest story um, for the victims. And I think if you consider the fact that the uh, the victims' families will always know that the remains of those who killed their loved ones are forever linked, quite literally, mm -hmm. mixed in with their loved ones because of the way they died. Mm -hmm. That is a serious grief trauma. Finding a place uh, to put Tamerlan Tsarnaev, um, we can do that, you know, mm -hmm. we can do that, we can make that happen. Separating out just the DNA of the attackers from the victims of 9-11 can't be done. Mm -hmm. Martha, has your family heard? I mean, I guess, is it, what's the, the been the repercussions for, well, for you and your family? It's been, um, I, I think as far as my, um, my immediate family and their reaction, I have uh, a brother-in-law who's from Massachusetts, 
and he was like, mm, you know, not so much, you know. Uh, not a, happy a, with a, you? A fan. He was like, well, I wouldn't have done it, but uh, I thought he should have been buried at sea. Um, but I have some other friends, fr uh, other, sorry, other relatives from Massachusetts uh, on my husband's side, and they were very, very supportive, and they said that the people, they actually knew some people who were injured. And those people said, we're just glad it's done so we can focus right. on the healing. And, and I think that that was my intent was let's stop, let's stop talking about that. So let's, you know, I know the political will isn't there or it's a hot potato. Let's just deal with it so that we can get back to healing and the focus on the victims and the recovery. And, and, and that was uh, a big part of, of, uh, you know, the forging ahead and, you know, the issue is, uh, I mean, I was even reluctant to do the interview today, but I, I, you know, I know could, we talked for a little bit. And in fact, I should probably explain the, the arm wrestler thing real quick since oh, I did yeah. mention that in the introduction. <laughs> uh, Martha came to Hamaganza, which is a yearly uh, benefit concert that I helped to organize, or I, I do organize. Yeah. Um, and she arm wrestled school board chairman uh, Jeffrey Bourne, uh, <laughs> not yet seated at the time, but uh, in fact, she unseated him, um, <laughs> beat him in record time, I think. Um, <laughs> Without benefit of alcohol either. So. And, uh, yeah, she was just there. But we thank you for your ham and for your donation <laughs> to the to the food bank. So yes, a ham from a ham. So there you go. But uh, again, I'm sorry. Back to. But yeah, I just I, I think the important thing is that as as conflicted as people felt about this, the important thing is to focus on healing as a nation and getting back to what's what's really important. Certainly, as as the national issues. Um, do you, but, do you feel like you kind of took one for the team? And which team did you take it for? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, d again, I, I, I don't think it's so much about me. I, I, I think, but yeah, a little bit, yeah. And I think if I, if I had to say the team, I, I would say, um, you know, uh, s some, uh, I would say maybe the Muslim tradition, the right to a Sharia burial, if that's something that you feel is necessary. Um, uh, you know, for... Um, part of the Muslim community, although the the imam from the Islamic Center of Virginia uh, was, I understand, not in support of this um, for a lot of different reasons, in particulars of faith, tradition, and, and I understand that. Um, I, I think maybe if I had to, to ex say anything, um, for, for the team of decent human beings um, on the planet and, and in America who still uh, who, who maybe aren't polarized by the war or by um, uh, religious issues or um, people who just good, common, decent human behavior. Um, and maybe I took one on the chin for that. I don't know. <laughs> I hadn't really thought about it until you asked. But A year from now or five years from now, uh -huh. if we had not done right with this person's body, right. how would we feel about ourselves how would the world view us yeah. extrapolate out these are questions that we do as Americans ask ourselves I think what I'm afraid of as as a as an American is that we are as a nation becoming less tolerant um, less accepting of differences um, um, more rigid and um, more xenophobic. Uh, I don't think that's true of everyone, but it's definitely something that I feel uh, or have sensed. Um, and I, um, it concerns me because, you know, we as a nation have been involved 
for well over a decade in um, the the war in Afghanistan and also the war in Iraq. And over 100,000 civilians have died in Iraq alone. And yet, where is the remonstration and the you know, the accountability for that. I'm not talking about military deaths. I'm talking about civilian deaths. Well, I think and in the same time frame of, of these bombings, there was uh, we accidentally bombed a wedding in Afghanistan. It, yeah. And yeah. Uh, that's sort of dropped from the headlines now. Right, the um, drone attacks. and Yeah, and that, where, I guess that's the concern. Is like where ethically and morally, where do we stand as a nation about those deaths and those things and i'm not i'm not in by pointing the finger at that i'm not exculpating you know mr tarnayev who i think was uh, made a very heinous decision heinous act and and a bad choice and there's all kinds of reasons i could extrapolate about why i think he got to that point which is not the issue but i uh, i think that you know what for me is telling is the fact that there was such a reaction to this um, people felt a need to point the finger and to vent, and uh, whenever that occurs, there's always something underlying that. And what is what is that? And that's the concern that I yeah, have. Yeah, and I think we also saw that with his uncle mm -hmm. and his families. Mm -hmm. You know, as a person who works with death and dying and grieving, uh, I was very interested in how quickly um, his uncle. Uh, denounced him and his brother and the ways in which he denounced them. Mm -hmm. And so really, I think um, this burial and, and discussion about it should really go back to what was being done for the family. You know, are, are we going to blame an entire family for the acts of two individuals? Are we going to blame Chechnya for the acts of two individuals? Are we going to blame a religion for their acts? Or are we instead going to step up and help their family in a difficult time and um, and move on and, exactly. and work toward the victims? Um, now, Elaine, that's something that often happens, isn't it? Is the uh, perpetrator's family often finds itself in in hiding um, the, the these brothers of this this fellow who kidnapped the three women um, who right. were recently freed and where was right. that in Ohio? Um, are in hiding because right. they're almost guilt by association, mm -hmm. guilt by genetics. Sure. Um, right. And and I, I don't know if this is uh, you probably didn't see any of the Gray family uh, and any of what you dealt with, but I, I can imagine that that they probably are feeling a little bit of heat right now with mm -hmm. with their son. Yeah, they have a, a different location, not being from Richmond, so that that's helpful. But um, I think the more obvious connection is um, if we go back to um, the murders uh, that I know the most about um, of the Harvey family. Mm -hmm. um, let us also point out that the same week, uh, the Baskerville family was murdered. Mm -hmm. And the different dynamic because of uh, their daughter Ashley having been involved with um, the perpetrators. Here we have um, parents who were innocent and were also murdered, but their um, their death is not honored in the same way as mm -hmm. as the Harveys um, because of their association with the daughter who was associated with the murderers. So, so it was as much a victim in the whole thing as as 
anybody just mm-hmm. again associated with them was a, right. was a girlfriend or so that family um, is not remembered or honored in the same way in part because of um, I think the shame of the family of, of her connections and and no one really knowing uh, the depth of those connections um, but I think that's a very dangerous uh, slope to start sliding down where mm-hmm. we're I mean, uh, in this day and age, we're not all living on the family homestead over dinner talking about our our plans and, you know, our diabolical wishes. Um, These people are not that connected to each Mm -hmm. other. And so to blame um, people in such a mobile society just for having the length of of family, Mm -hmm. I think is really dangerous. um, Mm -hmm. I agree. And upsetting. Now, with the the Harvey family uh, and, and... Mr. Gray appealing his his sentence, uh, has that brought up anything for you? You know, each time it comes up, although, um, you know, you understand the the justice process and that as uh, an innocent person, you would want as many appeals as possible for the truth to come out. Um, It's very upsetting to watch as this person again and again um, is is given those chances no matter what your belief system about justice is uh, it's it's painful to go back there um, it's very upsetting and it, it's it's very brings up a lot of grief um, old and, and you know causes new grief all right well guys thanks for being here today um, any sure. final words from either of you on, on some of this controversy either controversy I uh I just agree with uh, with you that um, we need to move forward and uh, focus on healing and um, yeah, and I would hope that um, communities that are affected, instead of having an insatiable desire for information about the accused, would instead have an insatiable desire for information about those who are survivors and, well and who are, are moving forward with um, incredible human spirit and with the generosity of people who love them. That's what I would like um, us to be focused on. What she said. What she said. <laughs> All right. Well, and I've been with Martha Mullen, um, who, again, she's a licensed counselor in private practice, but she also... Um, helped to bring about uh, the final burial of uh, Tamerlan Tsarnaev, one of the Boston bombers, and Elaine Cameron Miles, uh, the Reverend Elaine Cameron Miles. She's a Unitarian minister who specializes in death and dying and bereavement, um, and she also officiated the uh, Harvey funerals um, and has been involved in quite a few high-profile funerals over the years. Thank you guys for being here. Good job, Martha. Thank you. You too. And that's RBA Report for Thursday, January 2nd, 2014. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Dovey. RBA Report is produced by myself, Charlie Deardor, and Brittany Tracy. The Richmond Public Media News team is Brittany Tracy, Cameron Vigliano, Abid Rahman, and Anafrio Castilla. News keeps happening, which means there will be plenty more to talk about next week right here on RBA Report. Join us.